Welcome back, everyone, to today's episode of The Joseph Carlson Show. I hope you enjoyed your long weekend. I spent some time doing research, and I finally decided to add a new stock to my portfolio. And it actually lies in a new sector, one that I'm bringing back to the portfolio, which is industrials. The new stock is Canadian Pacific Railway. We are now investing in a railroad, and I want to explain why I chose this one over the other great options. So in this episode, we'll be going over Canadian Pacific Railway, how I envision it in my portfolio, what I think the risks and rewards are for the company, and why I'm now buying the stock. It's also time to update you with my dividend income for June. We had an almost record-breaking month last month, close but not quite there. So we'll go over this and I'll explain what my goals are for dividend income in the future. Now we also have news that Americans are starting to tap into their savings to cope with high inflation. The data on this is staggering. I'll show you some graphs and data in this article that I really think is concerning. So I'll be going into this as well. And then we have some reported news that the new Apple Watch Series 8 will be able to detect if you have a fever and recommend that you take your temperature or go to the doctor. We'll be looking at this and how Apple ties into the future of healthcare. So we have a lot to get to in this episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in. This is the passive income portfolio. This is also known as somewhat of a dividend growth portfolio. That's the strategy that I'm following. I've been doing this strategy since around late 2017. And I've been putting in a little bit of money at the beginning and putting in more and more money every single year into this portfolio. The goal of this portfolio is to buy good companies with wide moats, unlikely to be disrupted. They're predictable businesses that have high amounts of free cash flow. And then they also have the tendency to pay out a dividend because these are not companies that need to reinvest all of their money. They're already operating very efficiently. So these are companies that in most cases can afford to pay investors dividends every single quarter. Not all the companies I invest in are high yield companies. Some of them have lower starting yields like Apple and Microsoft. With the lower starting yield companies, they typically do a lot in the way of buybacks, which is an alternative to dividends. It's not my preference, but I also think it's something great for these companies to do. They're still returning a lot of cash to the shareholder. Apple does a good amount of dividends, but they also do a massive amount of buybacks. Microsoft does the same. Then there's companies that just do a lot of dividends and they don't do any buybacks. Vici's one of them. Vici's a company that collects rent from its tenants, then it passes it off to me, the investor. And it does that every single quarter. I earn dividends of $450 every three months from this company. And that's gonna be raised around 10% per year. Then I've also made some new bets in my portfolio. With the preparation of going into a recession, a lot of the consumer discretionary stocks have taken a big hit. Companies that people don't really have to buy, they don't really need to buy their product on a daily basis, but they do it with their own discretionary income. Those are consumer discretionary. Companies like Starbucks, companies like Texas Roadhouse or Domino's Pizza, even though these stocks are considered consumer discretionary, I consider them staples. And I think that people continue to gravitate to these companies even during recessionary times. So I'm making a significant bet that as we go through a recession and these type of companies get hurt, at the other end of this, these ones will really, really recover rapidly. That's what I'm doing with these investments. So Starbucks, Texas Roadhouse, and Domino's Pizza are what everybody's selling out of right now. These are companies that I'm buying into. And the nice thing is these companies right now have had their price come down so much that their yield has gone up a lot. Starbucks has almost a 3% starting yield. Texas Roadhouse is 2.5%. So these are decent dividend pairs as of now. So overall, with this portfolio, I'm accumulating shares in companies that have a tendency to pay a dividend and grow that dividend over time. And that's not the only factor I look at. Of course, I'm looking at a lot of other factors, including the resilience of the stock 
and the valuation. One of the most fun parts of this portfolio has been to look at the dividend income over time to see the amount of money just flowing back into my pocket that these companies collect from their customers. We can see these dividends being paid out every single month. If I look at just June, I received a total of six individual payments in June, ranging from $10 to $552. SCHD was the single biggest dividend payment that I received in June. That is Schwab's US Dividend Equity ETF. I think it's an incredibly high quality ETF. That one paid me $552. So that was a huge dividend payment. Then we had Texas Roadhouse paying me $139. I'm getting $140 a quarter from this restaurant. We have Microsoft with a $95 dividend. They return most of their money through buybacks. So the dividend's a smaller one for that company. Target's a $10 dividend, but this is a very small holding for me. I only have a couple thousand in it. And then T. Rowe price was $25. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Domino's Pizza was 44. And in total, that makes up $867. So you can see this growth over time. This is one of the biggest dividend income months that I've ever received right there with January. So that was the biggest one so far. But overall, you will see this trend go upwards. You'll see me earn more and more dividends every single month. And I have more dividends coming in the pipeline. July 7th, I have Vici with $448. Then JP Morgan on the 31st, $162. And then there's going to be a lot of other companies that declare dividends throughout this month that will be added to this upcoming dividend list. So the income stream will continue to march forward, and all these dividends will be reinvested into my portfolio. Right now, I'm averaging somewhere around $500 to $600 a month in dividends, and I want my average every single month to be above $1,000. That is my next short-term goal, to get this dividend income from $600 a month to $1,000 a month. If I'm able to accomplish that, that's $12,000 per year of net income flows from my dividend income alone back into my portfolio. And I'll try to allocate that capital these companies have paid me as intelligently as possible. So let's go ahead and talk about the new holding to the portfolio, which is in the industrials category. The holding that I'm starting to buy is Canadian Pacific, and I wanna go over why I chose this one. Now, before we jump in specifically to Canadian Pacific, this company, and why I'm buying this stock, I wanna first do a quick rundown of the framework that I'm using to pick these companies. Because at first glance, Canadian Pacific does not seem like anything special. It seems like a very boring, uninspiring company. It is a railroad, right? It's not anything to get real excited about. That's people's first impressions when they're not familiar with good characteristics to look for companies. When you do a deeper dive, you realize that these are the type of companies you probably want to own when you're investing in a long-term basis. I'll go ahead and throw this illustration on the screen. I don't know where to give this image credit from. I don't know where it came from, but I love this image because it illustrates my thought process and the way that I'm doing investing. You have two different people here doing two different strategies. You have the inconsistent ladder with someone trying to make these huge leaps from 50 to 100 to 150 to 200 to 250. And he's struggling. He's barely hanging on because the ladder has so few rungs that he's having to put an enormous amount of effort to get from one rung to another. Then you have the consistent ladder where every single rung in the ladder is much closer. They're in increments of 10, not 50. 
So that person, even though they're taking smaller steps, they're doing it on a more consistent basis and they're going to predictably get to the top. The person on the left, we don't really know. They have to really have a, a lot of luck. They have to put in more effort. So when I look at these two different types of, of paths that these individuals have taken, there's a lot of people right now in the market trying to take the inconsistent ladder to wealth. Look at all the investors that are trying to do long shot bets on companies and just hoping, praying that these companies will work out for them. It's got to work. I have to have Palantir go up 10 times in value. I have to have Tesla stock double in value. And hopefully I can jump from that 50 rung ladder to the 150 rung, right? Hopefully I can make this big, huge step forward and skip all the steps in between. It might work. There's a chance. They could get lucky and maybe that will happen for some individuals, but it's no guarantee. It is inconsistent. That is the definition of the word. And there's lots of people that are attracted to inconsistent investing because they want quick gains. That's not my path. That's not what this portfolio has been doing. And that's not what I'm going to be doing going forward. I am firmly in the consistent ladder camp. I am taking small, consistent steps to build wealth. One of them is I'm investing $1,000 per week into my portfolio of my own deposits. Then on top of that, I'm building a diversified portfolio of high quality dividend growth companies that will provide me with cash flow to deposit more money on top of my own contributions with my $1,000 deposits per week into my portfolio. In addition to my cash flow from these dividend companies, I will be able to compound on a very consistent basis. And then on top of that, not only through dividends and contributions, am I being consistent in climbing this ladder, but also through the companies I'm investing in. There's different types of companies that have different expected returns. They have different growth paths. There's ones that are highly unpredictable, and then there's companies that are predictable. There's companies that don't have free cash flow, and then there's companies that have free cash flow. There's companies that are undervalued, and there's companies that are overvalued. The people in the inconsistent camp look for unpredictable companies that lack any significant moat. They're not usually free cash flow generative to any meaningful amount, and in most cases, they're widely overvalued because they're extremely popular. Those are all factors that lead to lower future expected returns. In the other camp, the consistent ladder, You have people that invest in simple, predictable businesses, companies with wide moats, unlikely to be disrupted by competition. You have companies that are free cash flow generative already, returning a significant amount of money to the investor, either through buybacks or dividends. You have companies that are undervalued by historical and traditional valuation metrics. That is the consistent ladder camp. So as investors, we really have to decide what type of ladder we're going to climb. Are you going to climb the one with more rungs? It might be a more slow path but it is a more dependable path. You're not going to fall off the ladder halfway up. The one on the left, best of luck to you. Trying to hit long shots is a dangerous game. And over the past three years, I've seen more than enough investors blow up their entire portfolios chasing quick gains that that is not a path that I want to go down. That's not a ladder I want to climb. Another thing I want to mention is this quote that I came across from Peter Lynch. This is one of my all-time favorite quotes, and I recently just shared it on Twitter, and it got a lot of discussion. Here's the quote. He says, if I could avoid a single stock, it would be the hottest stock in the hottest industry, the one that gets the most favorable publicity, the one that every investor hears about in the carpool or on the commuter train, and succumbing to social pressure often buys. The hottest stock in the hottest industry, the one that everyone hears about in the carpool or the commuter train, I would update that part of the quote to on TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. The stock that everyone hears about on TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube 
and often succumbs to social pressure buying that stock. Peter Lynch would avoid the most popular company in the hottest sector, knowing that those companies are often overpriced. And he advocated that investors bought good companies that were growing in not hot sectors, in sectors that nobody was talking about. That was part of a strategy that led to very good returns. So in the pursuit of buying wide moat companies with predictable incomes, free cash flow generative, and companies that return a lot of money back to the shareholder that are also not incredibly popular, not companies that are bid up to extremely high valuations, that leads me into my Canadian Pacific Railway investment. This is a company that I decided to invest in for a couple different reasons. First of all, what initially caught my interest with this investment is I was looking at investing in railways. And I was looking at the different options of Union Pacific Railway, one that I've owned before, which I think is a great company. But then I heard news that Bill Ackman bought nearly $3 billion of Canadian Pacific. And that was surprising to me. Why did he choose this railway company over the others? Well, that's something that I started to research. Now, I wouldn't ever recommend just buying everything that Bill Ackman does. And that's not what I'm doing here. He owns many companies that I don't own and don't have any intention of owning. But I was already looking at railways, and this one I found to be the most attractive. Let's first go ahead and take a look at some of the fundamentals here. We'll be using the website Qualtrum Insights. For those of you not familiar, this is included with the Patreon. It is a website that we developed for our Patreon members that gives you at a glance all the fundamentals of the company and you can just use it anytime you want for any company. Now, the Patreon is 10 bucks a month. That's all we ask. And there's a free trial. So if you join today, you will not pay until the end of the month. And of course, there's no bait and switch. There's no long-term contracts. You can cancel anytime. So go ahead, try it out. There's a link in the description. Now, Canadian Pacific's a $66 billion company. It has a PE ratio of 24. This is a little bit above the rest of the market, the S&P 500 but arguably for good reason. And we'll get into more of that later. One of the new things that we introduced to Qualtrum is a quality rating using the Petrosky score. This looks over nine different fundamentals of the company, including dilution, income, liquidity, and margins of the company, and overall assesses the rating. The reason that this one is rating Canadian Pacific low with a four instead of like a seven, an eight, or a nine is because this company is in the transition of acquiring a different company. So it's thrown off a lot of these fundamentals that normally would be in very good shape. But because of that acquisition, it's bumped down the score a little bit. So right now, I wouldn't look too much into the score. Now, let's go ahead and look at some of the fundamentals here. We'll first check out the revenue. Do we see revenue growth here? Obviously, yes. The revenue is growing over time. Since 2010, it went from $4.9 billion to $8 billion. So it's continued to grow, and even last year, it grew year over year. More important than revenue growth is profitability growth, and the EBITDA is growing as well. Notice that the EBITDA is growing faster than their overall revenue. That means that not only are they growing their top line, they're also growing their margins, expanding their margins and growing their profitability at a faster rate. From 2010, the EBITDA went from $1.6 billion to 2021, $4.8 billion. So the EBITDA almost 3x'd over that time period. Another thing that I really like to see, and possibly the most important piece of information here, is the amount of free cash flow the company's generating. Since 2012, the company has never had a year of negative free cash flow. And this is something that was very inconsistent before then. It had many years of negative free cash flow. But the new management that took over has really put this company in shape, really made them more efficient, really made it so that the cash outflows and inflows are much more stable. And you can see the free cash flow growth in nominal terms over that time period. Now, we also added in a new thing to Qualtrum 
that shows you not only the free cash flow, but the free cash flow broken down on a per share basis. If I toggle this, it looks similar, but it is different because this factors in share dilution or share buybacks. If the company does share dilution, the free cash flow on a per share basis will go down. It won't grow as much. If the company does buybacks, this free cash flow per share will grow at an even more accelerated pace. Since this company is doing share buybacks over time, the free cash flow per share is actually outpacing their overall free cash flow, which is a positive thing for investors. If I bought this company back in 2012, my free cash flow that I owned on a per share basis was 21 cents. And since then, it's grown to $3.23 per share. That's my ownership in free cash flow, 21 cents per share to $3.23 per share. That is an incredible amount of free cash flow growth over these past 10 years. It's trading around a price to free cash flow per share of 20, which is not too expensive for this type of company. Now, moving on to other profitability metrics, of course, we can look at the net income here. This is growing steadily over time, something we want to see. It's outpacing their revenue growth. The EPS of the company, it's not perfectly consistent every year, but again, we're looking at the long-term trends. Since 2010, since 2013, this company has grown its earnings per share at a very very rapid pace. Now looking at the balance sheet here, like any industrial company, they carry a lot of debt. That's something that you have to acknowledge when you go into these companies. Most of them use leverage very wisely. And since we've been in interest rates that have been essentially zero, money's been so cheap, they've been able to take out a lot of debt and reinvest it at very attractive rates. Now the debt has spiked but again, because they're doing this acquisition, that's what's throwing off a lot of these fundamentals and making the company right now optically look like it's in worse shape than it is. So the debt has spiked, but that's because they're going through an acquisition. And we'll get more into that acquisition in a minute. Now, the dividend income is very interesting with this company. We have their long-term dividend payments here with Qualtrum, and we can look back to 1984. They are a dedicated dividend payer, but you notice this doesn't look like a lot of U.S. dividend policies. For example, if we pull up a competitor, Union Pacific, an American counterpart to Canadian Pacific, we have a dividend income that looks a lot different. The only time that this dividend income has had a down year where it's gone down from the previous year was all the way back in 1997. Since then, they've only ever raised a dividend, and that is a dividend growth company by definition. Canadian Pacific is different with their policy. They make no commitment to grow the dividend every year. That's something that they openly state. They say that it's probably going to grow over time, we'll continue to grow it as we grow the company, but we'll base the dividend every quarter based on our cash flow, our balance sheet, the investments we want to make, and all our different capital allocation decisions. Then when we've made those decisions, we'll appropriate the right amount of money left over to dividends. And that's an interesting policy. It's actually something that I don't mind. So they're not expected to grow the dividend every single year, but as the company grows over time, becomes more efficient, they will grow the dividend over time. Even since 2015, since 2014, they've nearly tripled the dividend payment. So it is going to grow over time, but it's not going to be something that's perfectly consistent. A lot of dividend investors will rule out a company that has this type of policy, but I don't really mind it. In fact, I think it's kind of prudent. They're still paying you cash flow. They're still paying you their excess earnings, but they're just doing so on a quarter by quarter basis based off the specific cash flows they have and the specific investments they want to make. Another thing that's somewhat of a downside of this company 
is it has a lower starting yield. That's probably the biggest downside in today's market. There's lots of companies with 4% yields, 5% yields, and Canadian Pacific has a 0.8% starting dividend yield, which is much lower than most of the companies in my portfolio. The bright side is, and the good news is, this could grow rapidly over time. I expect significant dividend growth over the next five years. They have a low payout ratio, meaning even though they have a low starting yield, they have a lot of wiggle room, a lot of room to be able to increase this yield over time rapidly. If we again compare to Union Pacific, this does have a much more attractive starting yield of 2.4%. That'll attract a lot of dividend investors, a lot of income investors, but the payout ratio is much higher. 43%. So even though Union Pacific has a much higher starting yield, it does have less room to grow over time. And again, I think both of these are great companies. Both of them have wide moats. Both of them have very attractive characteristics, but I'm just trying to highlight the differences between the two investments. So some people will instantly write off this company as a dividend company because they don't like the starting yield and they don't like the inconsistency, but both of these things I don't think are much of a problem. Over time, they're growing the dividend rapidly. They're being very prudent with their finances and they're growing their free cash flow faster than any other railway. They are the highest free cash flow growth in the industry, which means they'll have more capital to either allocate to investments to grow their business, to doing buybacks or doing dividends. And buybacks are something that this company has been doing. Since 2014, they've gone down from 864 million shares outstanding to 666. So they have been buying back their stock rapidly, which makes it so that you have more equity in the company. Generally speaking, this is a very good thing for shareholders. It's a way that this company returns cash to the shareholder. So on just a quick cursory glance at this company, the fundamentals look really good. The valuation doesn't look extreme. Most things are moving in the right direction, but I want to look at this company deeper and see what's going on with the story of it. The big transformative news in the railway industry is that Kansas City Southern was being purchased by either two different companies. One of them was Canadian Pacific, and they ended up winning this bid. So Canadian Pacific is purchasing the railway Kansas City Southern. And this agreement makes something unique. It makes it so that they're creating the first single-line rail network linking U.S., Mexico, and Canada together. No other railway does that. So that is a unique factor. And there's different opinions on this, but I think the consensus opinion is this is a very good thing for Canadian Pacific and it'll create a lot of competition for the other railways. In Bill Ackman's annual letter, he highlights this agreement going through. He says Canadian Pacific has been the fastest growing North American class one railroad with average organic revenue growth of 6% over the last five years. In December, Canadian Pacific closed the acquisition of Kansas City Southern, which we believe will be a transformational and value-creating transaction. The acquisition of Kansas City Southern positions Canadian Pacific to be the only North American railroad with the direct route from Canada to Mexico and will result in significant revenue and cost synergies. So they do think that this will create synergy between these networks. Kansas City Southern's rail network is at the center of North American rail systems, linking Mexico to major markets in the Midwest and Southeast regions of the United States. The CPKCS combination will connect six of the seven largest metro regions in North America in one direct route to offer unparalleled speed and service for customers. Canadian Pacific currently owns Kansas City Southern through a voting trust, which entitles Canadian Pacific to full economic ownership of the company, but does not permit Canadian Pacific to take operational control of the railroad until it receives regulatory approval of its pending merger application. We expect this approval to occur by the end of this year. So right now, they have closed this deal, 
and they're just waiting for approval from the regulatory body for them to take full control. And this is something that it might not go through. There's a chance that, that you know something outside of the norm could happen. But in terms of what I've read about this deal, it is widely accepted that it's going to be approved. There's a very high chance of it being approved. So right now we have this rail network, Canadian Pacific, buying Kansas City Southern. will create this synergy in that they have this vast network connecting three different countries. And that's something very unique. It'll make it one of the most competitive rail networks in all of North America. And Bill Ackman is very bullish on this company. He thinks that he'll beat the market with it. He thinks it will be a company that outperforms over a long period of time. Further, he says, we believe Canadian Pacific is an attractive business as it operates in an oligopolist industry where the barriers of entry are high due to considerable capital requirements, regulation, and network effects. The company provides a mission-critical freight transportation system, which is often the cheapest or the only viable method of transporting heavy freight for long distances, allowing for significant pricing power. I think that these are understatements. When he says that it has you know, capital requirements, regulation, and network effects, there is not going to be another new railway network built in North America like these class one rail networks. It's just never going to happen. That's not something you're ever going to see. There's not much that ever changes in this industry. In fact, this deal is probably one of the last deals that we'll see over the next decade of this magnitude. So when he says that the, the capital requirements are big and the regulation is heavy, that is somewhat of an understatement. This hasn't changed much in the past two decades, and it likely won't change much in the future. And in terms of mission critical, again, that's putting it lightly. There is not really anything in the foreseeable future that can disrupt these businesses. People talk about driverless trucks, right? The Tesla truck or whatever. Those aren't going to disrupt rail networks. They are vastly more efficient than anything we can conceive of right now. In terms of being driverless, that's kind of how trains operate already. They're on railways. So these companies are very unlikely to be disrupted. He goes on saying, moreover, we believe freight volumes for the industry are poised for strong growth as rail freight transportation takes share from trucking. Rail currently accounts for less than 10% of overall freight transportation dollars in the United States, with trucking representing more than 60%. So while a lot of people assume that trucking will overtake rail, he believes the opposite is happening, that rail is going to take a bigger chunk of the pie from trucking. Now, Bill Ackman has mentioned that one of his biggest regrets in his portfolio was selling Canadian Pacific for a huge profit years ago. He thought he was making good gains and moving on to different holdings, but the companies just continued to make this free cash flow, continue to make operating efficiency, continue to perform well, and it's something that he wants it back in his portfolio. He says, since we exited our original investment in Canadian Pacific in 2016, we have continued to closely follow the company and have admired the company's industry-leading execution and operational excellence. We believe the acquisition of Kansas City Southern will be transformational for Canadian Pacific's rail network and expect Canadian Pacific's leadership team to make significant operational improvements to Kansas City Southern. I have that expectation as well because the leadership team did it with Canadian Pacific. If we take a little history lesson, a lot of Canadian Pacific's success over the past decade has been due to Bill Ackman. He came into the company as an activist investor, and he was successful in getting the CEO fired. He got him out of a job because simply he wasn't doing a good job. At the time, Canadian Pacific was one of the worst performing railroads. The operating efficiency of the company was a complete joke. It was the worst out of all these type of railroads 
and Bill Ackman saw an opportunity to improve it. Well, we know how the story played out. Since that firing in 2012, obviously things have improved slightly over time. Canadian Pacific, with their new leadership, went from the worst operational efficiency company in the industry to the best. They improved all the way to the best. So when Bill Ackman says, hey, the leadership might be able to help Kansas City Southern, I think he's correct. They've done it with their own rail network. And so they look at this as an opportunity to buy Kansas City Southern, to make it so they have this synergy of this massive rail network, and then they can operate it with the same efficiency that they have with Canadian Pacific. They'll implement the same procedures, the same rules, the same leadership to improve Kansas City Southern, which I think is a high likelihood of happening. Now he goes on to highlight that even though these things are happening, even though there's a lot of potential here for upside, Canadian Pacific shares are actually trading at a discounted valuation relative to history and pairs. That's something that Bill Ackman always looks at with his holdings, is a company trading at a discount to its long-term valuation and relative to other companies in the industry. This is what we look for with a margin of safety. You want valuation support. You don't want a company that's spiked up in value, that's gone up significantly in value. Typically, you want to buy one that's gone down in value relative to the rest of the industry. He says that we believe the successful consummation and integration of Kansas City Southern acquisition will lead to attractive future investment returns relative to our purchase price as Canadian Pacific generates robust free cash flow per share growth over the medium term. That's the metric that we just looked at the free cash flow per share growth, and which should cause it to receive a higher valuation that is more consistent with its historical levels and its peer levels. Well, that investment thesis seems simple enough. You buy a company with predictable incomes, high amounts of free cash flow, it has a pretty good acquisition going on right now. It'll probably make the company more attractive to investors in the future, and you're buying it at a discount to its long-term average, its long-term valuation. Meanwhile, the company is growing its free cash flow per share at a very rapid pace. Now, of course, Bill Ackman's not the only opinion I'd get on this subject. Berkshire Hathaway also owns BNSF, which is a massive rail network in the United States. And they were asked at their Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, if Canadian Pacific buys Kansas City Rail, how does that affect your railway? It's obviously a uh, transaction uh, we followed very closely with both Canadian National and Canadian Pacific uh, bidding to purchase Kansas City Southern. Uh, either of those companies acquiring Kansas City Southern will have an impact on BNSF. That's Gray Gable. He's going to be the new CEO of Berkshire Hathaway once Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger pass away. So he is, is very knowledgeable about the businesses that Berkshire owns, obviously. And he says that it will have an impact meaning this is going to be somewhat of a competitive threat. Now, it's not going to be the ruin of any other railway network, but it will have an impact. This will have synergy between those two companies that will affect other companies. And they seem apprehensive to tell the regulators how to do their job, but they're definitely on the side of not wanting a deal like this to go through because it will negatively affect their business. Listen to the rest of his response here. We do have a strong presence in Mexico, not as strong as, as some of our competition, but we would feel competition there. So uh, we'll follow that transaction very closely. Uh, as it goes before the Surface Transportation Board, the, the standard that will be applied is that competition has to be protected or enhanced. So that's our opportunity to protect our, our franchise on behalf of our customers. 
So we, we move intermodal business both in and out of there on behalf of certain customers. We'll want to protect uh, the rights of our customers there. So we'll be active in, in the approval process, but there's no question in the end it impacts our franchise. He says that Berkshire will be active in the process of approval there because it might negatively affect their customers. They are going to see increased competition. And if this deal doesn't go through, that's a good thing for Berkshire Hathaway. If the deal does go through, that's a good thing for Canadian Pacific. And I do think overall, there's a high likelihood of this deal going through. So that's a basic overview of the investment. With this acquisition, I think this company will do very well in the future. They'll continue to grow that free cash flow per share. They'll continue to do buybacks. They'll raise the dividend over time. They're unlikely to be disrupted or face any type of dire competition in the future. And this is a company that I think I'll earn attractive gains over the next 10 years. Right now, I just purchased $500 worth. That's my first starter buy. I'm gonna be doing more buys all throughout this week. And my goal is to grow this holding to be about a 5% holding. So 5% of my portfolio is around $16,000. That's where I want this holding to sit. So we have a long ways to go. I'll get it to $1,000 relatively soon, and then I'll continue to add in net cash flows, new deposits, plus dividends reinvested back into this holding and other ones I think are undervalued. But I think over time, I will make money with this holding even if it goes down in the short term with all these fears the market is facing. Now, moving on, let's jump into some scary news here. This is a headline that I think is actually frightening for the economy and the markets. Americans tap pandemic savings to cope with inflation. So finally, Americans are starting to tap into their savings. They're not just spending their income. From the start of the pandemic to the end of 2021, U.S. households built up $2.7 trillion 2.7 trillion, that's an incomprehensible number in extra savings, according to Moody's analytics. COVID-19 lockdowns kept people at home with nowhere to spend their money, and three rounds of stimulus payments boosted their incomes. So this is where I think we get into a misnomer here. They refer to this as savings, which kind of comes with the connotation that you're doing something responsible, you're putting your extra money aside, you you have a budget, right? You're you're doing what Dave Ramsey says, to not spend more than you make, to save some extra money. That's not really what Americans did during the pandemic. This wasn't savings. This was money printed and given to people. Free extra money that they simply didn't have a way to spend. So I don't really consider the savings even though technically it is it doesn't have the same meaning. This wasn't as if people suddenly became financially prudent and decided to save money. This was a direct consequence of getting $2.7 trillion of stimulus checks directly deposited into their bank accounts. Now, here's where the trouble is. This is the personal savings rate monthly. Notice how this chart does not look normal. We had that enormous spike from like 7% to 35% in 2020. Again, that wasn't people deciding to save money. That was people being locked in their houses, not able to spend money, and then being deposited extra money at the same time, multiple times over and over again. That second spike that's a little bit smaller was the extra stimulus check that arguably we didn't really need. Even low-income people didn't need it at that point because most of them already had a lot of savings, a lot of money in checking. But we got that second stimulus check and that bumped up the savings rate again spiking it above 25%. But notice what's happening now. This is falling back down 
to record lows, back to below where it was in 2010. So people aren't saving. They're spending more now than ever. And they're spending more especially because inflation has gotten out of control. So the things we used to buy for reasonable prices are now super expensive. So this is concerning news. We're dipping into our savings. The savings rate has gone down to 10-year lows. And at the same time, we have a new earnings season coming up where companies are expected to make record profits. But that might not be the case. If we get a string of companies that are saying people are starting to cut back on spending and we're lowering our guidance, the stock market could fall further with the adjustment of earnings being revised lower. Right now, Wall Street analyst consensus estimate is for the S&P 500 revenue to come in 10.4% higher than in the same period last year with 5.6% earnings growth. So that's what the market's expecting right now. 10% more revenue, 5.6% earnings growth. If we do cut back on spending and consumers are saying, uh, inflation's eating away at my budget, things are getting too expensive, I'm not gonna be buying as much stuff the second half of 2022, then companies will revise their forecasts lower. They'll revise earnings lower. And these Wall Street analysts will wait until the company gives this poor guidance to cut these earnings down. So right now, a lot of these analysts, I think, have their head in the sand. They don't see that people are going to cut back on spending and earnings are going to be revised lower. That's something I do think we'll see in the second half of 2022. So if you're invested right now, there's no other advice you can really give than to just be patient. We don't know what the next six months holds. Like literally nobody does. Everybody can speculate what's going to happen. But if you're invested in a diversified portfolio of high quality companies that you plan on holding for the next five to 10 years, you should welcome a decrease in stock price that you consider to be temporary. You don't want to invest in companies where you think the stock price decrease is long term or permanent. Companies that have their market caps just implode and they'll never return back to their highs. But for companies that I'm in, for my newer holdings, these restaurant companies, I think all of these price declines are temporary. I think that every one of these companies will reach and surpass their all-time high in price in the future. That might take a year to do, but I firmly believe that to be the case. None of these companies, I believe, I'll be in the red long-term with them. And so if we see temporary decline in prices, that's something that I actually welcome in this market. Now, moving on, I want to discuss one new rumored feature about the new Apple Watch. And I'm going to make a bold prediction here about a fundamental change of Apple overall. And I think you'll want to stick around to hear this because it's something that I've been thinking about recently that I really think there's a decent chance of happening with Apple. Now, before we jump into this news, I have to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor. It's FTX US. They're one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges in the US. And they're sponsoring lots of people like Tom Brady, Steph Curry, Kevin O'Leary, lots of names that you've heard about because they want to get their name out about their platform. FTX US is, of course, known for their cryptocurrency. They offer trading in it with low fees. Now, you know my take on this. I don't own any cryptocurrency. It's not something that I'm big into. I don't do any research on it. Uh, I like to invest in things that produce cash flows. Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett, durable companies, that type of thing. And FTX wants people to know that they're becoming a more fully-fledged platform that offers trading of lots of different types of investments. One of them is stocks. And I've started a stock portfolio here as part of their beta testing group. I've been investing in Amazon. They're doing a lot of things that other companies aren't doing. You can buy and sell anytime the market's open with fractional shares, no trading fees. And they also don't sell your information with payment for order flow. So that's not something they're doing either. 
The platform's super simple, easy to use, and their stock offerings are a member of FINRA and SIPC. So they are insured. On top of that, they are very well backed. So this is a very stable company. And I've been testing out their software and I've really liked it so far. I've literally had zero problems using it. Now, having said that, if you want to sign up for it right now, use the link in the pinned comment below. I pinned one for the mobile app and desktop. You can sign up using each. The important thing is to remember to use the refer code Carlson, my last name, C-A-R-L-S-O-N, that gives you $10 upon your first $100 trade. So you instantly get a 10% return on your first $100 trade. So go ahead and sign up now and let me know what you think of the platform. Now moving on, I wanna discuss one rumor about Apple. And Apple has a lot of rumors right now. The company's full of these things that they might or might not do. Will they have an AR VR headset? Will they have the Apple car? Will they have this new feature in their MacBook? But one of them that I think is awesome is the Apple Watch Series 8. I've been reading a lot of rumors about this device in particular. And the Apple Watch has been kind of transformed into the Apple portable healthcare device. It started off as something that was basically a notification system on your wrist, so you didn't have to get your phone out of your pocket. Hey, look, I got a new Twitter notification, a new YouTube notification. I got a text message. Whatever notifications would pop up, you'd be able to read them. You'd be able to respond to whatever message you want right from your watch. Then it kind of formed into a fitness device where you can do workouts and track different exercises that you do. Then it started to transition from a fitness device into a healthcare device with a very strong emphasis on life-saving things like fall down detection that has saved the lives of numerous people just from having an Apple Watch. But I think the biggest growth path for Apple in this category is by far healthcare. This is where Apple is leaning into the most and I think it's the best decision. The upcoming Apple Watch Series 8 will reportedly come with body temperature sensors that can tell if you're running a fever. Now they say that this is still an internal testing and if it does get released, Apple expects to incorporate the feature in the Watch Series 8 as well as the rumored rugged smartwatch for extreme sport athletes. So they're making another variation of it. The upcoming entry-level one won't include this though. So Apple's going to have kind of the two-tier thing where they probably have their, their kind of base version of it and then the pro version that has these new features. Now, on top of just tracking whether or not you have a fever, there's a lot of other things they're rumored to be working on. Tracking whether or not your blood pressure is increasing, that would be nice to know. If you could see at a glance, if your health is increasing or lowering, if your blood pressure is going up or down, and they're also developing a fertility planning system. The fertility feature could be available as soon as next year, along with potential improvements to its irregular heartbeat monitoring and an upgrade to how it tracks sleep patterns. So they have a lot of things going on with the Apple Watch, but again, almost all of this has to do with healthcare. I'm gonna make a prediction here, and this is something that I think will sound somewhat crazy right now, but I really believe there's a, a possibility of this. It's not for certain, but I believe there's a possibility of this. Now, I say this being invested in Apple, so I'm obviously very bullish on the company, but I will say that I think over time, the Apple Watch will become more important to consumers and a more meaningful part of Apple than the iPhone. That's something that I think there's a chance that it really could happen. The iPhone is simply a portable computer. It's a little device you hold in your, your, your hand that gives you a display to access apps. That's basically what it does. It's great, it's amazing, it's the biggest revenue portion of Apple, but the Apple Watch is transforming into something that can literally track all the health details of your life. If it could really track whether your blood pressure 
is going up or down, if it can help with irregular heartbeats, if it can help with whether or not you have a fever, if it can help with whether or not you've fallen down and need help, the applications for the watch alone are virtually endless. So when I look at Apple as an investment in a company and what will become more meaningful to consumers over time, I do think there's a chance, not for certain, but I think there's a chance that the watch could evolve to kind of the most important central device of this company. And I don't think that that's being followed closely. Lots of people just look at Apple as an iPhone company, and it's clearly not. It's far more than just an iPhone company. So we'll see how that works out. Either way, I think Apple's a good investment, whether or not the watch is able to incorporate all these features. But I see significant room for improvement, for growth, and continued higher valuation for Apple than we see right now. I think this company is going to do really well over the next five years. So that's all for now. If you want to see more real investing, real updates week by week with transparency, companies that I lose money on and make money on, you can follow along for free by subscribing to the channel and make sure you have the bell icon on so you get notified. That's all for now, and I'll see you in the next.